0: K Y W Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One.
1: I, I was playing golf one day, and, and a guy came up to me. And he said, "I played against you uh, once in a while in the playground. You were a hell to play against. You know, you you made me work every minute that I was there. And, and you know, you, you, I, I remember you for that reason. And that that's kind of how I feel about." It my life you know you you do what you have to do
0: and our guest this week one of the greatest players in the history of the big five big five hall of famer university of pennsylvania standout stan pavlik stan thanks for stopping in
1: it's great to be here
0: uh now full disclosure for everybody listening you and i have a history we've worked together for several years doing the university of pennsylvania radio broadcast. So I think I said to see off the air, I hope uh, the anecdotes and stories that you tell here are as interesting as they are when we drive to Delaware State in the middle of winter for a I, game.
1: I've had a funny basketball life. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in it that uh, it strikes me funny. I'm glad you thought it was
0: fun. You, I mean, you really have had an extraordinary career. I mean, basketball, you kind of said this as we were sitting down, basketball has been a part of your life forever, really.
1: Uh, I, sometimes I think it The uh, basketball career didn't turn out exactly the way I wanted it to, but I somehow have managed to stay attached to it through pen and playing most of my whole 74 years.
0: So what's your first memory of basketball growing up? What's the first thing you remember about basketball?
1: Well, I remember uh, uh, my father was a coach at Woodrow Wilson High School, so I was always around all kinds of sports. So from the time I was a little kid, I was dragged along to – High school basketball games in Camden, the, uh, big five, the uh, big five city five series was really important. And he was a coach at Woodrow Wilson high school in Camden. So I was a fan of Woodrow Wilson in orange and black from the time I was five years old. And I, I think I was interested in all sports, but I kind of gravitated toward basketball.
0: When did it first to start become a passion for you?
1: Oh, I think very early, um, when I realized uh, as a kid that I really wasn't a very good baseball player, and uh, I had tried to play football and have kind of a body for football when I was younger, but I broke my collarbone four times before eighth grade. Wow, which prevented me from playing basketball, and I kind of got the idea, well, maybe this isn't a good idea because I will never get to play basketball, but but even as a little kid, uh, there was a schoolyard, my elementary school, Parkside Schoolyard, where some bigger kids, some who played for Camden High, uh, that storied program. And I would go there and uh, hope that, uh, sit on my basketball, hope they needed a basketball, and hope I could fill in a spot. And about the only thing I could do then was shoot a two-hand set shot.
0: But that really, the playground then was something special, as it really was like through your high school and, and college years, wasn't it?
1: it, it well, the— Parkside School Playground wasn't a special place. It was a bunch of neighborhood kids and a couple extra kids that would come, maybe some older guys too. Uh, they were probably in their 20s, but I thought they were senior <laughs> citizens at that point. So it, it wasn't the same kind of playground experience that I had later on. As I grew up and went to Collingswood High School, they had they had courts right outside where great play. I mean, I go back a long way. Guys like George Dempsey and X ex- Ex-Philadelphia Warrior player played. So some really good players played there. They closed those playgrounds down because they built an addition to the high school, and they moved them to uh, Audubon. Uh, they didn't move to college, of course, but we moved to Audubon. And as a senior in high school and as a uh, college player, because we wouldn't, couldn't play in summer leagues, uh, all the South Jersey college athletes uh, met there. We recently had a reunion, and we, we had a heck of a group of people playing there. I mean, we had Billy Melchione, who's won an NBA and an ABA championship. We have Gary Williams, who was an NCAA championship coach. And, uh, Bob Greason was a, an NBA player. Uh, myself and just a lot of guys that had great college careers. We kind of got together for a little reunion, and it was really a lot of fun, a lot of stories, as you can guess.
0: So you're at Collingswood, you're a standout. When does Penn come on the radar?
1: I think Penn came on the radar really early. I, I was a standout at Collingswood, but I was a 6'2 a half forward who could rebound. So I did get some offers, uh, I, but I didn't get a lot. I, uh, I had a good scoring average in college, but Jack McCluskey was interested in me, I think, right from the beginning. And I, I was interested in Penn, and and it was uh, something I really uh, wanted to do is go to Penn. Temple got interested late. They saw me get uh, – Harry Lutwatt came out and saw me get 31 against a, a good Trenton team that only scored 34. So that that got him excited, and he asked me to go there. But it was ma- mainly Penn. I really didn't even open my mind up to other choices.
0: Were you enthralled with the idea of an Ivy League school, or was it more – coach Jack McCluskey and and the basketball. Well
1: McCluskey was a guy that was hard to turn down. And he had coached earlier in his life at Collingswood High School. So he was kind of storied there. Uh a funny story. My my father had a great connection with uh Niagara University, where he went to college and there's a famous Niagara coach, and we're talking old time stuff here, a guy named Taps Gallagher. The court at Niagara is named after him. So Taps I guess Niagara had no kind of a budget for recruiting. Taps calls my father and says, hey, Benny, my father's nickname was Benny, stop by the house. Uh, can I stop by the house and stay there? I don't have money for a hotel. I have a couple of kids in South Jersey I want to recruit. So Taps comes to the house and he's recruiting Billy Melchioni at the time. He stays at my house, goes to the Bishop Eustace game to see Melchione, and everybody at the game that recognizes him is saying, well, what about... Benny's son. What? My father never told him I even played basketball because he wanted me to go to Penn so badly, and it's still really funny to me to this day that I have this college coach, and he laughed too at the end. And my father explained to him that Penn is where we wanted me to go to.
0: So you have success right away at Penn, but you couldn't play as a freshman. This was you had a, a. Great three-year career, but you weren't able to play varsity freshman because that, that was just how it was then.
1: Yeah, we had a really good freshman team. Uh, back in those days, they had a freshman varsity game. And Jeff Newman, who was a tremendous player who I played with all those years, and I and John Hellings and Charlie Fitzgerald was another player from South Jersey, uh, we almost beat them. We, <laughs> they, they, we beat a John Weideman team. Uh, four points, I think, was the difference. And uh, we had a really decent Freshman team, but we really didn't do as well as we thought we would in the Big Five, as because there was a Big Five freshman conference. St. Joe was a really good team, so uh, yeah, we, we I, you know I, I had a good freshman year. I think one of the standout things was uh, Earl Monroe, who people who follow basketball might know. Uh, he played at Temple Prep. A lot of people don't know that he went from Bartram to Temple Prep, and and uh, we played against them. Temple Prep didn't have a great school, uh, team, but we hardly noticed him. Yeah, you know, so I always got a, a laugh in my life. and say, well, he played. Yeah, he played, but uh, you know, he was no, he was a standout player who wasn't noticed until, of course, he went to Winston Salem.
0: So you, uh, your sophomore year, first year of varsity. How's the transition to, to playing varsity basketball at Penn? Pretty. The numbers make it look like pretty seamless. I think he averaged sixteen a game as a sophomore.
1: Uh, it was exciting. Uh, we were looking forward to it. Uh, one of the reasons, uh, I don't know if it was a good reason, that I went to Penn is I recognized that that team, uh, the senior team uh, that Penn had, which who shared and I, uh, a city championship back in those days, uh, had almost all seniors. In fact, uh, almost everybody graduated. So I kind of knew that I would have a good opportunity to play if I played well. So it was exciting to feel that we were going to get it, uh, an opportunity right away. And Jeff and I started from the first game. And I came out gangbusters, to be honest with you. I even surprised me. First two games, I had uh, 26 and 28 against Rutgers and Navy and got hurt. And I missed the game against Swarthmore because they didn't need me against Swarthmore. And then Michigan State came in. And I was, was a, able to play in that game. I think I tried to overdo it. And from that point on, I didn't do as well as I did in the first two games. But it was really a good year we had finished with a, a, a winning record. Ray Carazo was the senior leader of that team, and uh, yeah, it was. It said that we were going to be good in the future. I think.
0: So I think you mentioned six two and a half forward. What was your game?
1: Well, I think I always could score, and I was always uh, able to uh, get a few rebounds even at that height, and I think that I just hustled. You know, I was a first one on defense down the court, the first one on offense up the court. My father taught me those things, and I think I just was able to uh, find opportunities to score. And I really think I was a little bit lucky because I played with, in my career, I can name three great point guards. In high school, it was Gary Williams who went on to Maryland and set assist records there. Jeff Newman was, I think, one of the best uh, point guards if you want to call what we had point guards back then, in the, in the Big Five, and to this day, I don't see many who could play better than he did, and he always was able to get me the ball. Then when I went on to the Eastern League, I played with a, a really good point guard named Mac Daughtry, who, again, was able to deflect to me and let me score. So I just think I, I had a knack for scoring, I, more than anything else, and I played, I think, I hope, a little harder than most people.
0: And one of the the things I think people have to keep in mind, uh, because you scored over 1,500 points at Penn, 1,501, uh, averaged more than 20 a game, senior year more than 23 a game. This is all pre-three-point line. This is all two-point baskets and foul shots, which I think makes it even more remarkable the numbers.
1: Well, I said I was always a scorer, and uh, I wasn't even a good foul shooter. I probably would have uh, averaged a lot more. I only shot uh, uh, 68% from the foul line, so I wasn't a really good foul shooter. Um, I was able to score. I think uh, in the Ivy League, uh, maybe a little weaker, but last year there were four really good teams in the Ivy League, and I I pride myself on that. You and I have discussed that in the past, that I averaged 20 points a game over my career. And I, I don't think there's that many guys. And there's some group, certainly great players in the Big Five that did it, average 20 points a game. So I was really happy with that. And in addition to the fact that we did win an Ivy League championship, once Bill Bradley got out of school at Princeton, <laughs> at Princeton <laughs> we were able to win a, a, an Ivy League championship. So, And I always shot, you know, I always get joked about that I took a lot of shots. And I, I probably shot the ball often, but I never shot always around 50%. So, uh, I was proud of that too.
0: So, let's talk about your senior year. You mentioned Bill Bradley graduates from Princeton. So, do you guys come into that season really seeing an opportunity there?
1: Uh, no question about it. You know, certainly Jeff, me, Charlie Fitzgerald, John Hellings, we especially thought that this is going to be a year that we could win. We certainly knew that there were other good teams in that league. Princeton was going to still be a good team. Uh, Columbia was a very good team because they had Newmark, who who was a seven-footer, and Cornell was probably the toughest team in in that. So there were, you know how the Ivy League is. Mm -hmm. We've been covering it for years. If you get four good teams in the Ivy League, that's a good year for the Ivy League, and these teams are all competitive. And it was competitive to the last game. We had to beat Princeton in our game, final game, to be the Ivy League champs. And we were able to do that.
0: So this is the 65-66 season, and it's a season I think there's always an asterisk put next to it because you guys win the Ivy League, but you don't go to the NCAA tournament like you're supposed to. And we had talked about this. I didn't appreciate how weird this situation was until I read a couple articles getting ready for you to come in. It's amazing when you look back 50 years, Penn doesn't go to the NCAA tournament because of an argument with the NCAA about
1: academics. Is that what it came down to? Well, it's complicated. Yes. But I think it was an argument about uh, academics between two ego-strong men. Jeremiah Ford was the uh, AD of Penn. And uh, I think Walter Byers, I think, was the uh, head of the NCAA. And the NCAA had uh, made a rule called the 1-6 rule, and what they said was, you had to have a one-six uh, grade average to be eligible. Penn's response was, "Well, we create our own uh, standards. The NCAA, an, an athletic organization, doesn't have a right to to you know, make our academic standards." And it, it got to be a, a little mental contest between the two, and there were letters written, and all kind of stuff was happening, and. You know, standard Ivy Leaguers We all stand up for it. I think Frank Dolson, a famous writer who most people in Philly remember, wrote an article in favor of not going. And all we could think of was, here, here are players that have maybe an opportunity to show themselves on the national stage. We were actually scheduled to play Syracuse. We practiced to play Syracuse, even though we knew that the opportunity to go probably wasn't going to be given to us. Uh, McCluskey was... Livid and uh, Jeremiah Ford, instead of signing a letter, from what we understood we we could the letter could have been tabled, we could have gone, and everything would have been fine, but instead he there was a letter published about his anger at the Ivy League and and Walter Byers got his back up in a you know, snit and and lo and behold, we were uh, we didn't go and and I think there was a, a swimmer from Yale didn't go as well maybe one other fencer or something like that but no other ivy league team even though that rule nothing got changed and nothing was different the next year princeton certainly went what went to the yeah and like tournament
0: this wasn't a situation just to be clear like it wasn't like your team wouldn't have met the standards they just didn't want the ncaa imposing what they wanted on an Ivy League institution. No, and the
1: point is, how can you compare a, a grade average from schools and not to disparage any other colleges or universities, but maybe a one six in the Ivy League might be worth a little bit more than a one six at another place. So how can you make a determination like that? Plus how, how do you make a determination based on uh, what courses a guy has taken? You know, one six might be easy in uh, taking one course of studies and not so easy if you're an engineering uh, physics engineering, a student at Penn. So, so they. I think in theory, they were right, uh, but I think the it could have been solved for the players. I mean, we had earned the right to go the year prior. Bill Bradley had gone to the Final Four, so you know we we're playing uh, a team of Syracuse with Dave Bing, another you know NBA fame player, and a bunch of other players, and we thought, heck, we got a chance. We had some good players. And I think uh, I think it would have helped me immensely. Uh, might given uh, NBA scouts a better opinion, but we were scheduled to go uh, down to Virginia to play, and it just never happened. Uh, Jim Beheim was on that team too, wasn't he? Jim Beheim was on that team. Uh, it, the, the situation caused Jack McCluskey to quit. He he left that year and he went to Wake Forest, and I think we had a. Uh, Jack had a recruit in his hands named Jeff Petrie, another famous basketball player's name. And when Jack quit, Jeff uh, certainly went to Princeton, which was certainly a big loss for, for Penn, as was Jack McCluskey. I think Jack loved Penn. He had gone to school here. He had been a three-sport athlete here. Uh, and he his reason, his reason for leaving was he said if he stayed, uh, it might not have been good for Jeremiah Ford's health. So he decided to go.
0: So your basketball career at Penn ends like that. What was next? I mean, did you immediately think, once you get over the disappointment and all that, but were you like, I can play pro at some level? How? What was the thought process then?
1: Well, I, I thought I could. Uh, when the draft came in those days, you had maybe 10, maybe 11 NBA teams, and they drafted 10, 11 rounds. Uh, I never got drafted. I, I averaged 23 point. Can you imagine it? player average of 23 points a game in his senior year and not getting drafted, and playing a fairly good schedule. Remember, we did play in the Big Five as well as the Ivy League. Uh, so I never got drafted until a supplemental round uh, by the Sixers, and and I didn't have the chance. And I really thought in my own mind um, that I had a little bit to learn on how to be a guard. There was no way I could be a, a three or a forward at, at six two and a half, I had had to learn how to be a, a shooting guard or whatever you want to call it. And I said, "Well, you know, okay, uh, and let me let me uh, go uh, into the Eastern League and see if I can learn something." I played summer ball in the Baker League, and I found out that I could hold my own with anyone. Even, but I realized too that my guard skills weren't what they should be. And players coming out that year had a little different problem than players coming out in other years, and it was called Vietnam. So players graduating college were immediately 1A. And if you had a high draft number, there was a draft lottery back then, uh, you were going to be drafted. And you had the opportunity to get get into the National Guard if you were fortunate enough to do that. So every guy that went in, on to the NBA was able to play in the NBA uh, really had to fulfill some sort of military obligation. And most of them were able to do it uh, through the National Guard. I chose to teach school, uh, and that gave me a deferment. Uh, There were deferments because they needed teachers so badly in in urban situations. So I taught school in Camden, and uh, my thought was, let me play ball in the uh, Eastern League. I got drafted by the Harrisburg Patriots, and uh, it was all a new experience for me. And the Eastern League was pretty good at that time. And you mentioned the Sixers
0: in that supplemental. You had talks with them, didn't you?
1: I, I did have talks with them, but their interest was not great. They they invited me down to camp. Uh, so they have a rookie camp back in those days. Um, and I, I said, look, you know, I, I, I realize that, and, and if you think about it, that was the year uh, that they won. Yeah, 66-67. They were pretty good. They only <laughs> lost 13 games. But uh, Billy Melchione made that squad, and, and Matt Matt Gukas both out of the Big Five both make that squad. And I looked at it like, you know, they were both guards. They've been guards their whole life, and maybe I might not have a good opportunity. And no, nobody else came knocking. I didn't go to any camps or, or anything like that. And I decided to play in, in the Baker League, uh, which was a great decision at that time. I mean, when you, when you go to your first game in the Baker League and there's Billy Cunningham and Luke Jackson playing, uh, you say, well, maybe, maybe I might learn something here.
0: So then you mentioned the Eastern League, the Eastern Basketball Association. You have a ton of success there, and you you played several teams in the Pennsylvania. I think it was Harrisburg. You were up on Wilkesbury, right? Uh, uh,
1: Wilkesbury was the bulk of my career, really. And so, give
0: some people that might not be familiar: this was a league you were in late '60s through into the '70s. Uh, what was the quality of hoops in that league?
1: Well, there there are. Guys that started in the Eastern League that are in the Hall of Fame. So the quality was really great. And what it was, was a weekend league, uh, East Coast primarily, but teams went all the way out to Johnstown on occasion. And it, because of uh, attendance and things like that, the teams changed their locations frequently. But Allentown, Scranton, wilkes uh, uh Wilmington, uh, Hartford were teams that were always seemed to be able to maintain good fan support and and stayed in the league. Harrisburg, I was only out there for one year. And it was very interesting because that first year I was in the league was before the ABA. And that the league was extremely tough at that time. It was really good. And I went out there and uh, uh, Steve Corton was one of the guards and UB White was one of the guards, great player. Another NBA player on and off, Al Butler was one of the guards. And they had a free front court line. And I think we finished in last place. But I was able to make that team, which was uh, exciting for me. It was it was an effort to make that team as a guard. Uh, the coach saw something in me. And one of the guards I met, Steve Corton, uh, I, I just beat him out for the job. He was a really good player. I felt fortunate to do that. And I spent a year there coming off the bench and learning how to play. And what was uh, nice after that is they they broke up as a team and they, and we had a draft and Stan Novak, who was another Penn man, player at Penn uh, was coaching uh Wilkes-Barre Barons. And he took me in, in, in that expansion draft or whatever you want to call it. Right. And I had the opportunity to go up there and he knew a little bit about me, about my college career. And I had improved the second year in the Baker league. I got a lot better doing what I learned how to do. I learned how to shoot the three pointer because the, Easterly had a three-pointer at that time and I was able to start right away and it began a what I hope is a you know was a really nice career making money on the weekends and, and enjoying myself. I sure still wanted to play on a higher level but it just wasn't meant to be. I mean uh, you had a couple though. Didn't you
0: tell me you had a couple I don't want to say opportunities a couple times where maybe doors seemed like they might open
1: a little bit. Yeah, I did and and I had a job and I had a a, a family and and Um, I I went to Sixers camp the next year. Uh, Jack Ramsey, the general manager, after the summer league, because I had played so well, he said, look, we really want you to come to camp. And uh, I I did go down to Sixers camp, and it probably wasn't the smartest idea again, because they had the entire team returning from that uh, championship team that lost 13 games. So I didn't look at it that way. I was naive. I went down. It It was a great camp. Alex Adam was the coach, and uh, we went three a days in the beginning. And funny story, we had this higher draft He's this 6'11 kid. I don't even remember his name. But he, I know he was from Westfield, New Jersey. And he was my roommate at, at down in Margate where they had their camp. So we'd go to the first day and we'd do a three a day. So go home to the room. We're all obviously just beat out of our minds. I go to sleep. I wake up. His bags... <laughs> everything are gone. This kid who was six eleven, and I, you know, maybe I think he was drafted even and maybe had a chance to make that team. He was out of there. (laughs) He had had enough of basketball after that one, one three a day session. But I went down did well, got invited to a a regular camp. We just stayed there and the the, uh, uh, guys from last year came down. So I got to know you're talking Chet Walker, Luke Jackson, Hal Greer, uh, Larry Costello, Wally Jones. I mean, these guys are in the Hall of Fame. Right. That's a pretty good team. And I thought in the regular camp, there's no doubt in my mind that I played as well as anybody in that camp. And uh, Alex Adam told me so, but he, he said that, you know, you're just not going to uh, make a team where these guys are all coming back. And uh, Jack Ramsey said to me, well, we'll sign you to a contract, uh, which, but you'll play in the Eastern League, but you'll be under contract. We don't pay you but you'll be under contract. And I said, well, I don't know if that keeps me uh, obligated to the Sixers in case somebody else wants me. So I said, you know, there's no reason to do that. The contract minimum salary in the NBA, people will find this hard to believe when you hear some of the contracts that are being signed this week. Minimum salary in the NBA that at that time was $7,000 a year. Well, I was making more than that, coaching and playing basketball in the Eastern League. So I didn't sign. Uh, and uh, nobody else came calling. I taught school, had a couple opportunities in the ABA, uh, and after a while, I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I said, well, I'm not going to go to camp, uh, and uh, uh, I got, every time I had to do that, camps were in September, so I had to go to the school board and say, oh, give me a couple weeks leave, and uh, after a while, they get a little tired of that, right. <laughs> hiring other people, So, and, and you know, we had a young child, my wife and I, and I just decided uh, that Maybe it just wasn't meant to be. Close time, I, uh, uh, Hal Blitman, coach of Cheney, who coached the Miami team in the ABA, called me. And it, I, I knew it was fate because he, he said, okay, we will get, guarantee your money if you come down, you leave school. And he, he certainly knew more about me than most people Him being a Philadelphia guy. And that, that's the only time I, I told him, I said, hey, I've got a bad ankle. And I never have. I probably missed two games in I don't know how many years of basketball. And and uh, I'll be fine when I get down, and I'll, I'll be better. I never heard another call back. No ticket was in the mail, and I decided, you know what? This probably wasn't meant for me. And I, I, I guess I accepted that they didn't think I was good enough. I was averaging over 25 a game, making more three-pointers. Uh, the, the NBA didn't have three-pointers at that point, but I was making a ton. I thought the ABA would be terrific for and I just never got a call. There were players playing in the ABA that I had had great success against. but I just never got the call. And I I guess I – I think I accepted it. Um, I don't know if it was intelligent or not because I had a family. And I, how much can I do this and why, how much of a drag could – and I think that's the only point in my life where I say, well, maybe my desire to play is not as great as it should be.
0: So how long did you stay with the Eastern League? What was your last year there?
1: Uh, my last year there was – Seventy four, seventy five. Uh, I was very proud of the Eastern League. You know, I won a championship. Uh, our team, Wilkes-Barre Barons, we won a championship in 69. Uh, we won 27 games and lost two. So to this day, best record in the history of the Eastern League. And then our team got rid of half the players, the Wilkes-Barre. So we had a couple down season, Then they decided to try again. In 73, uh, we won the league again. So I've got two championships under my belt in very good competition. If if people people that know basketball and look at the names that played, uh, really really good players, just wasn't room for them at that time, and uh, so the two championships were great. But after that, the league, uh, I think there there was a pro, the economics of our country weren't great. Uh, salaries were cut because I got to the point where I was making uh, close to two hundred dollars a game. So that was a pretty good weekend for me uh, to to come home with four hundred dollars. And and there was a little traveling involved to, to go to Connecticut and places like that, and my days were tough. You know, you you. I, oh, by the way, you know, to add to that, I started coaching at Woodrow Wilson High School, uh, so I was coaching, teaching, and playing, and getting home at two o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, and then going back. Right. Go, and plus, staying in shape. And
0: we have to take a break right now on one on one. We will have more with Big Five Hall of Famer Stan Pavlik right after this. They're on a journey through breweries and watering holes throughout the region. It actually tastes like apple pie in a glass. Okay, I'm getting it now. Now I'm getting the pie.
1: John McDevitt and Paul Kurtz are the Beer and Booze Bros. Don't miss any of their podcasts.
0: That's all I need, another addiction. On the Radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back on one-on-one. Our guest this week, Big Five Hall of Famer, former University of Pennsylvania basketball star Stan Pavlik. Was coaching always going to be a next step for you?
1: Uh, well, uh, yeah, I thought so. My, I I was around coaching, you know, from the time I right. mentioned this before. Uh, you know, I, I went to every football game. I found that when I went to college and high school, I was still rooting for Woodrow Wilson, I think, half the time because it was so ingrained in my spirit. I used to clean the this, this football spikes off at time Maths and stuff. I, I just was so much into uh, sports. And, uh, uh, well— I played ball for three years, and uh, Gary Williams, uh, another famous name, we mentioned him once, uh, became the head coach at Woodrow Wilson High School. And he said, I'd like you to come over. So I went from teaching elementary school to Woodrow Wilson, became his assistant. He understood that I was playing on weekends, thank goodness. He was really good about that. So I was an assistant coach in my first year as an assistant coach at Woodrow Wilson High School, and Gary's first year as a head coach at Woodrow Wilson. Uh, we go 27-0. and 0. We win the state championship. He was probably 24 and I was 26. And we had just a, tr- a tremendous team uh, uh, there. And uh, a kid named Harold Sullinger, uh came in and from the West. He came in from Ohio, transferred in 6-9, could really play. We didn't lose a game. I mean, we beat East Orange in a final and it was terrific. So uh, uh, we we got a taste of success
0: very, very early. So you eventually take over the program. Was it tough? A lot of times, I've seen when players excel at a high level, sometimes it can be difficult to coach because stuff that came easy to you as an athlete maybe doesn't come easy to kids. And there's a, it's you you have problem. Why can't they do it? It was easy for me. Did you ever have any problems like that, or was it an easy transition to going from playing to coaching?
1: Well, I think because I was a teacher first. I don't think that was a difficult thing. Like, And when I first started, I was teaching JV, coaching JV kids, and we had this great varsity team, but the JVs weren't too good. The first JV team I had was good. The second group of kids just couldn't play, uh, but they were great kids, and they tried, and we ended up winning games. Uh, but when I became a head coach, uh, the first couple of years were a struggle. We played in a tremendous conference with South Jersey North, it was Camden High, Bishop, Eustis, Just really good teams, really good players. But then I had a bunch of really good kids, uh, players, come over from uh, East Camden players. They came over from Davis School. In fact, they asked me to go over and watch them play as junior high schoolers, and I got like a big grin on my face (laughs) when I saw these guys. And, uh, yeah, I had kids come in, and it took a year. But the second year, we had a tremendous year, got beat in a, a South Jersey final, and I had everybody back in 1976, and we were picked number one team in the state. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. We did get go uh, to the state final, and we got beat by the same East Orange team that we had beaten in 70. They had a great team with a couple kids that became pros, actually. Uh, so I, I love that, and I, I really enjoyed coaching the kids, and I enjoyed coaching the kids from Camden. The kids I had were really athletic, probably more athletic. I mean, I was a good player. But they were probably more athletic uh, than I was. And the good thing was that it, I was still playing in the Eastern League until 76 when I uh, ruptured an Achilles tendon. But I could beat them all the time. So <laughs> it didn't happen that any of them were, were able to beat me. Talk to me about
0: how a kid from <laughs> South Jersey ends up coaching in Saudi Arabia. Uh,
1: it's almost impossible to <laughs> tell, tell the story. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I lost my income in the Eastern League because I couldn't play anymore. I probably, you know, I think I didn't stay in shape. I think that when the salaries went down, it wasn't of any interest to me anymore. Uh, and uh, I was feeling it. I was feeling, yeah. You know, and I was 33. It wasn't like I was old. Mm-hmm. I played nine years in that league. And, and uh, uh, so, I, you know, I, I wasn't going to play anymore after the Achilles injury. And I had a r- tremendous team coming back at Woodrow Wilson, a bunch of really good players, some young kids that I really wanted to coach. And somebody calls me and says, "Hey, uh, you, and I want, but I wanted to leave teaching because I didn't think I could support my family the way I wanted to and continue teaching." And by that time, there wasn't a, a problem with Vietnam, and 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 I could do this. So, in that summer, uh, someone calls me and a, my college roommate calls me who worked for a company, and he says, "We we have a basketball program. Right? We have a basketball program in 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 uh, Saudi Arabia." I said, oh, "Okay, so." he says, well, you're looking to get out of teaching, aren't you? I said, yeah. He says, well, there's a job stateside. You know, we need a purchasing person. I said, well, I I never purchased anything. So, you know, I I don't know how to do that. He said, look, your basketball background, I'll give you a good recommendation. Because he was a purchasing director in a a different part of the program. He says, you'll get the job. So they interviewed me and I put my my resume together and down there, And when I went down to interview, they looked at my resume and they said, man, you, you're, you've been involved in basketball for a long time. Would you be interested in going to Saudi Arabia to coach? And I said, you know, I was shocked. It really, because I didn't have any thought about that. I went home and talked to my wife and I said, well, let's let's see what it brings. We'll talk about it. Then I talked to the guy who recommended me for the purchasing job. He said, don't go there don't go to Saudi, right? It's a hellhole. It's this, it's that, it's that. But the more I talked with my wife at the time, I said, hey, you know, we, we should, you know, this is an opportunity that we may never had. By that time, we had two children. I said, you know, well, they paid for your trip over. They paid for your housing. The salary was good, and it was tax-free at that time. So I had the opportunity to go. They they liked me. Uh, I took, had an interview with person who was the head coach, and it's funny, and you know, I'm not disparaging him, but he had been given the job uh, and, and really wasn't a, a competent coach. He wasn't at all. The original coaches had left Saudi Arabia. They they didn't like it there, so they went home, and this guy was given the job reluctantly. So when I met him, I said, well, he, he doesn't, you know, I, I, I might have an opportunity to, to go to better places here. So we went, I became the assistant director of basketball. In, in for the Whitaker Corporation, we were, to explain that a little bit, the Saudi government wanted to get better in sports. And they hired the Whitaker Corporation for a four-year contract to coach or direct their national programs in basketball, swimming, and track and field, three sports that the United States is well-known for. So I was the assistant director of basketball for the Whitaker Corporation, and my job was to be the assistant coach and be a liaison person for uh, between the Saudis and to build their program.
0: And this would have been theoretically the like their national team that would have gone to the Olympics and stuff like that. That
1: yeah, well, they certainly weren't on a right. I know, but that's level. no, but yeah, you're you're correct. But it was to build a feeder program, right. And to and 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 to do all of that. And I I knew nothing about basketball in Saudi Arabia at that point. There were no Americans playing there. It was just Saudis, so I, I, I took this job and and I, I went when I went over there first. Now I had been overseas once before with the Penn Track Team, so to go from being in Ireland to being in Saudi Arabia is a different story. So I had to meet the uh, basketball team in uh, in Damascus, Syria. Now people think of Syria. It, it was it was tough back then as well, so. Uh, my plane was delayed about four hours, and I get into Damascus, Syria, which no, and there are no English-speaking people that I could see, and there I was. I'm in the airport, and there's nobody there to pick me up. So eventually, I found my way to, I had uh, an address where they were staying. They were there playing in the Arab Games tournament. So I met this team who had just won a game. And I had seen this team, they had been in uh, uh, Massachusetts and they had gone to the Montreal Olympics and trained in the States. So I had seen these kids play and I knew that this was their national team and I knew they weren't as good as my Woodrow Wilson team. I understood that. So, so I went and they, and they had just won a game that night. and Everybody was celebrating. I said, well, this guy must be more of a genius than I thought. The next day I met everybody. There's, there's, Millions of little anecdotes in between, too. But I got there late at night. I slept there. The next day, we're supposed to play at uh, Mauritania, which is a country in Africa. And it was the Arab games in Damascus. So we go to the courts. And in the first game, the team that they had beaten the night before is playing in the first game. So I walk in and I'm watching that game, and Matt, you and I could have beat that team. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you and I, you know,
1: and I think maybe all on one leg, and I'm saying, oh, there's nothing there. Then Mauritania beats us by about sixty, because they had some six, eight kids, and they were athletic kids, and they just they just beat the tar out of us. And because of that loss, and the Saudis paying money to Whitaker, they end up firing this head coach, which I think is who I think is incompetent. And I kind of worked my way in uh, to get the uh, director of basketball job. That's funny. I, I learned my lesson in corporate stuff because Whitaker is a corporation. So I said, now I'm the head coach and I walk into the corporate director and say, well, you know, okay, what's my raise going to be? And the guy said, what raise? <laughs> And my power play to be head coach, it wasn't so successful.
0: So how long did this last? How long were you the head coach over there?
1: I, I directed the program for about a year and three quarters. Okay. and But my uh, my marriage wasn't great. My, my wife wasn't happy there. She went home with the kids. The kids were there. They flourished in an international school. But I had to be away from them a little bit because we did do – while I was there, we did a tournament in Taipei – Taiwan. Uh, we did a port- tournament in Pakistan. Uh, we did a tournament in Alexandria, Egypt. So I, I you know, I was a lot of places uh, uh, lucky to go to Bahrain. We played a tournament in Bahrain. So what I did was get player, their basketball program, they did, They have clubs. They don't do their basketball uh, in the educational system like we do. They all belong to athletic clubs, all the kids in I guess they decide which one they want to belong to. So we had to pick the best player from the clubs, gather them. And you would think this would be easy, but you think about it. You're taking kids out of their life to go play in some tournament somewhere. And, and so, so we had to do that, find the kids, train them the best we could, and then go to these tournaments and play. And they—they, and they, I think we made progress while I was there. I think some of the, the players got better. I think they learned how to play basketball because – I, they played basketball kind of like soccer when I got there. All five players didn't believe that they had to run up and down, you know, past half court. They thought that maybe a couple of them <laughs> could stay on defense or offense. And I kind of taught them uh, there was one indoor court in the whole country. So, uh, you know, I had to worry about things in practice like we would stop a couple times for prayer. You, yeah. know, you know, you American coaches think of Bobby Knight when his players come to him and says we got to, you know, and then they would they would get around and uh, uh, fight at which direction Mecca was because we were in the indoor gym. And I'd have to watch that and wait till begin practice again. And everything I did was through an interpreter. So I never under, really knew, you know, when you take some basketball slang, right? like get back on defense.
0: How does it translate? Uh,
1: how does it translate colloquially to, to Arabic? And you could be sure it doesn't. So I never knew, like interpreters name was Harry. And he had previously been, his previous occupation was an ivory smuggler. <laughs> I'm not making it up. <laughs> and he was Ye- a Yemeni from the country of Yemen. And he was spent his whole life worrying that he would get deported out of Saudi Arabia. But, uh, I, I hope, always hoped that he was saying what I said. We went, we went to a tournament in Taiwan. I think it was kind of a, uh, They invited uh, Saudi Arabia only because they wanted to to get investment opportunities with that country. And we played uh, athletes in action in our first game, who started three, six, ten guys. And we were in Taiwan, so we're having international officials. And back in those days, you had no idea what they were doing. But I I figured i get my assistant, Lee Talbot. He was a coach at St. Francis, New York, before he came there. And I looked at him. He was sitting beside me. And I said you know, we may not score. We may not score. but how, Don't you believe we scored the first four points? So I say to him, let's go. Let's, <laughs> let's leave now. We ended up getting beat by 35, which the Prince, there was a Prince that always traveled with us. He was the head of the Federation. He rewarded the players by, because we got beat by 35 because they looked like they were organized mm-hmm. at least, and, and new. So this kind of experience is really great. We, you know, we won a few games in Pakistan, uh, they had a general who was playing on one of their teams, and he was a very important general. And he got, believe me when I say he got every call, <laughs> there was nobody making a call against him. So there were travel issues, there were all kinds of things. But over and all, I looked at it as a life-changing experience. So you come back. When do you start doing radio at the University of Pennsylvania? Well, I had you know, I did more basketball before that even came into, uh, you know, I when I came back, you coached in the CBA too, right? Well, I came back and I I really wanted a job. uh, And and Chuck Daly had just become the coach of Penn. So I interviewed and did not get the job. But a a player that played on the uh, 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 62 team at Penn, Sid Amira, just bought a team in the Continental Basketball League and they were going to put it in Atlantic City. And I don't know how we started talking about it, but I said, well, if you need a coach, I'm your guy. You know, I I played pro ball, I, I I coached. What else do you need? And we made a deal. And there were teams teams all over the place. But I you know I was working then. I got into a sales career, but somehow I talked them into the job. And uh, we traveled to Maine. We traveled to uh, Philly had a team. Rochester had a team. But the CBA was really good basketball. It, it, the EBL the Eastern Basketball League had converted into the CBA, and and. Players were in that league, and somehow I coached that league for one year, and we had a pretty good team in Atlantic City. No, no fans. The high
0: rollers, right? Atlanta,
1: one of the great names of all times. <laughs> my son and I were talking about it the other day. He said if he could only get a jersey, because the jersey had high rollers across the top, and there were two die, two dice. <laughs> on on the, yeah, I think it was seven on the four three, which I think is maybe one of the great logos of all time too, for a team that was in Atlantic city. And and, then there was no help from any of the casinos. We played in a small gym, got very little uh, attendance and then decided to move to Wawa the following year where they had a decent convention hall. I had Andre McCarter. I had very good players on that team. Uh, And uh, we won the first year, got beaten the playoffs and then we uh, uh, midway through the second season, the owners came to me. We love you. You're the greatest guy, in the world, we can't pay you anymore, <laughs> so they got rid of me, and 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 I, I left that situation. So, but it was terrific to coach. Uh, a coach who was in a league at that time, who's in the Hall of Fame now, is George Carl. George Carl was coach of one of the Montana teams, and they come back east, and 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 they would play like four games back East before they went back to, and we didn't have to make that trip out to Montana. So it was good for me and my new sales career. So I did that for two years and radio. I I can't remember the exact time, but it was probably quite a while when I got a call from Dan Baker and he's a famous guy around Philly. You know, we know him as the the Philly's announcer and and he at that time was running the radio for three of the big five schools. He was running the radio for St. Joe, uh, Penn, and I think LaSalle as well. And he said, I need somebody to do color. And he had a bunch of different people that were doing, uh, your job doing, doing that, the play by play. And then he had other guys who were doing the, uh, uh, the other, the, the, the other stuff. So he said, yeah, you, you'll be able to do it. And you may not do all the games, but you know, when I need you and you, you had a, a, a really good bunch of guys doing the, uh, play by play. I mean, uh, the guy from the Eagles did it. I, my, Merle Reese. Merle Reese did it. Larry Rosen did it. Dan did it a lot. Uh, the guy from New Jersey, uh, he did it as well. I'm trying to remember his name. But if Dan wasn't doing the play-by-play, which he did because he didn't want to pay anybody else to do it, then I got the chance to do uh, uh, the color. And that's where I got my start. And, and I did it for a, a, a quite a number of years and really enjoyed it. First time I did it, I did it with Larry Rosen, and he he was kind of busted me because it was my first time, and and it was halftime, and, and, and he just left. He said, <laughs> okay, it's halftime. It's your turn. And I had never done, been on the radio before, and I had, you know, I, and you know this as well as I do, four minutes on the radio is an eternity. Oh, yeah, when you're by, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about what color the floor is. It was up in Lafayette. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just talking. Just I, It was all nonsense. I wish I had a tape of it because <laughs> I was nervous to begin with, didn't know what to talk about, talked about the game as much as I could. But it, I, then I was in this limbo of a 10, 12-minute halftime where he just went to get a snack. <laughs> and he came back. I was laughing when he came back. So I, I learned how hard it is to do your job. That's for sure. <laughs> so
0: one thing, I knew you were in the Big Five Hall of Fame. As a player, I
1: didn't realize you were the first Penn player in the Big Five Hall of Fame. Little luck, you know, because certainly Ernie Beck, who didn't play in the Big Five, uh, that's why he didn't get in. And he's the probably most famous player that, that went to Penn at that time anyway. And uh, they decided to have a Big Five Hall of Fame in 1973. So timing was perfect for me. I had Their only thing was you had to be out five years. I had been out five years. In '73, and I was honored to be the the first guy in. It was a a little different then than it is now, uh, because it was the first year they had it in a hotel downtown, and some really big press conferences. And uh, the people I got in with were were pretty good too. I mean, when you talk about uh, it was a Larry Cannon, I believe, Wally Jones, oh the Temple Guy Rogers. Uh, and Cliff Anderson. I mean, that, that's a great class of people, all of whom made a big mark in a big five. So I, I was really proud. I'm in a few halls of fame, but that's one of my proudest ones to be in that, and especially to be the first class in.
0: So when you look at what basketball has done for you, has taken you, how do you reflect on the the, the kind of the whole big picture of what the sports brought to you?
1: Well, it's been a. a, a, a a life of love of the game. I just I just always wanted to be around it. I appreciate the fact that I can do it today with you and be close to the team. And, you know, they don't know who I am. It, it, it's a joke when you say that you've been out 52 years. They have no idea. They probably haven't even read my name in, in, in the yearbook or anything like that. But it, it really is the uh, identification of who I am. I mean, you know, I was not that self-confident of a kid until I realized I was a good player and start getting recognized for my ability to play. You know, having the career I did at Penn, and then uh, even though I, I, I was able, thank goodness, to justify that I had a great career in, e, in the uh, Eastern League, I mean, they picked a, a 25th anniversary team of, of the top players in the league, and I was one of them, along with Jack McCluskey, which is interesting. Uh, so that was, a, I'm proud of those little things that maybe nobody knows about, but to me, they were great accomplishments. And, and I like to think that I made the, the most of it. You know, I wasn't able, I, when I got divorced, I had custody of my two children and, uh, a coaching career on a higher level was certainly out of the question at that time. I just decided that my family was more important and they were. So I never pursued coaching, uh, other than the, uh, the CBA job that I did. I coached the kids a little bit when they were young, but they probably didn't like that very (laughs) much. Uh, So, so I, I just look at it as a, a a life of love of the game. And the fact that it was so much a part of it all the way, uh, all the way through, there's hardly a point where uh, I wasn't doing something that that kept me involved with it. And when I look at today, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 74. I understand, you know, where I am in life. And when you have people, and this isn't always at the Palestra, it's amazing. And, and you know, I have a nice, recognizable Polish name, so people who see the name they remember me. It's so that's 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 always nice, and they remember uh, you as a a player. And I, I think one one time I was, I played a lot of golf until right now when I so uh, I I was playing golf one day and and a guy came up to me and he said, are you know, stand Pavlik?" I said, "Yeah." And I didn't know the guy from Adam. He says, I played against you uh, once in a while on the playground. And and this is one of the greatest compliments. And he says, you were hell to play against. And it really made me feel good from some guy, probably, you know, street player, who said, you know, you know, you, you made me work every minute that I was there. And, and you, you know, you, you, I, I remember you for that reason. And that, that's kind of how I feel about my life. You know, you, you do what you have to do.
0: Best player, college, high school, playground, Baker League, Eastern League. Best player you ever played against?
1: This is including everybody?
0: Everybody. That's
1: a hard one. It really is. Uh, Give me me a couple. Well, let's see. In college, it was Bradley, hands down. Uh, But we did play against uh, Dick Snyder at Davidson, and he was really, I remember him as great, but Bradley, hands down, uh, he was a great player, a great leader. Uh, you know, you, could, you couldn't beat the guy. Yeah, we, we tried hard. No question about it. Uh, in professional, I got lucky to to play against some really good players. I played with and against Earl Monroe as a pro, and he was really, really special. Uh, a guy named John Brisker, who got, he was in the ABA until they kept him out of it for punching people. He had nothing to do. He came to the Eastern League and played four or five games. And he made me, feel, at the end of my career, made me feel foolish. But uh, he, he was one I remember. But there were so many. I mean, in the summer league, everybody played back then. I played in a game in 12th and Columbia, Bright Hope Church, right? You had Bradley, Chet Walker. How about this? Will and Willis Reed playing in the game. So, And I was starting in the back court, So to feel that you were part of that and always held my own and always scored points. It didn't matter where I played. So so there's so many great guys uh, that, that I played. In the Eastern League, it was Willie Somerset and, and a guy named, uh, I can't think of his name, a little guy that played in, for Atlanta for me, Charlie Chris. So he was a really good player. So I got to play against so many good ones. I mean, Sixers camp. Uh, it's hard to you say that one was better than the other but yeah, I did play against Wilt so maybe you'd have to say well, it, was, it was one game but you'd have to say I remember trying to block him out you know it's like okay this is going to be interesting
0: Stan Pavlik thanks so much for stopping by this was fun
1: okay thank you man I enjoyed it
0: and that will do it for this week's episode. One on One is an original sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like the show and want to help us out, make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. You can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks to Big Five Hall of Famer, former University of Pennsylvania basketball. basketball. Basketball star Stan Pavlik for stopping by this week. My name is Matt Leon. Come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.